I'm Daniel Frey and this is the Daniel Frey.me Talks, a podcast for anyone who wants to become or is already a developer. If you like to stay up to date with different technologies, learn from experts in the field and help you improve your career further, then this podcast is for you. I also invite you to follow us on DanielFrey.me. So let's begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome yet to another episode. So today with me in the city today, I have uh, actually uh, two people. So it's uh, it's going to be a bit more uh, broad and different than what we have been used to uh, do uh, for the past uh, few months. Um, so today with me, I have Ariel, which is a... Has been in the show already before, um, and he's gonna be introducing himself in just a bit. And then also a new guest, Ankit. Uh, so actually, Ankit, uh, I would like to start with you. Perhaps you can give us a small uh, overview um, of uh, who you are. Sure. Thank you so much, Daniel. Excited to be here. First time doing podcast. Very exciting times. Uh, I'm Ankit Agarwal. Uh, I lead the AI machine learning business development for the private equity firms uh, for AWS. Uh, I have been with the firm for uh, some time. Uh, prior to AWS, was uh, working with Deloitte for several years, uh, where I helped uh, building AI strategy as well as building MLOps practice for the cloud engineering group. Uh, and also worked extensively in the fraud and forensics domain using data science. Uh, uh, so AI machine learning is something that I breathe every day and generative AI these days is uh, uh, what I'm talking about uh, to a lot of individuals, a lot of investors, a lot of people. Very exciting time. Thank you so much for, for having me. Of course. So, uh, Ankit, it's it's great having you on the show. And indeed, one of the reasons uh, why I uh, invited to, to talk to you today is because you have been so active about uh, AI and generative AI in general. Uh, on your LinkedIn profile, I've seen uh, numerous of posts. You're you're working in Amazon directly uh, in the department, which is in charge of that. Uh, so it is uh, indeed great times and, uh, you know, great possibilities. And today we would like to explore that. Um, and of course, we have another person with us in the call today, which is Ariel. So Ariel, uh, go ahead, man. Cool. So hi, excited to be here again. Uh, in short, my name is Ariel. Been doing software engineering for about a decade now. You know, front-end, back-end, DevOps, cloud, AWS, all the good stuff. Been doing some tech leadership, engineering leadership. And I also have a few courses online. Um, all in all, uh, I love people. I love software. I love building stuff. I love education. And... Uh, over the past, uh, you know, month or so, um, I started working on my own venture uh, together with my co-founder Itai. Uh, together, we're building uh, Pezo, and Pezo is really an open source uh, platform that enables anyone to adopt AI with confidence. And I guess we're going to talk about that a bit uh, later down the road uh, when we talk about AI more in depth. So again, super happy to be here um, and talk about this fascinating topic. Nice. So uh, thank you both for the introductory. And uh, I mean, let's get the conversation going. Uh, and the first question that I really would like to talk about uh, is to you, Ankita, directed specifically, is, you know, we're hearing about generative AI. We're hearing about AI recently much more, uh, you know, ever since ChatGPT came to our lives uh, and gone public uh, by the company. Uh, so... You know, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about 
what is, uh, you know, when we talk about AI uh, and generative AI, what, what is actually, is there any difference? Is, is this all falls under the same, you know, the same spectrum under AI? Or is there really like when you say generative AI, it's, it's something different? Yeah, excellent question. So essentially, generative AI falls under the umbrella of AI. So all these technologies that we have been hearing from last several years, machine learning, deep learning, they're all part of uh, AI. However, uh, now there is a new subset within machine learning, uh, which is called generative AI. Uh, that is, again, part of AI itself. So it's an extension of AI. However, it's pretty powerful because it's capable of generating content similar to humans. And that's the reason it is getting so much traction these days. Uh, it can generate text. It can generate images. It can generate video. Think about anything, and it can do that. Uh, and... Uh, that's where we are with generative AI. So basically, if I understand correctly, when we say generative AI, it's just about the, the fact that there is an artificial intelligence mechanism that generates things for us, and that's where the name uh, generative uh, AI came from. So what kind of superpowers it gives us? You know, we spoke about um, it can generate some images or text. Perhaps we can dive in a little bit more into into really the powerful um you know, powerful words that it can give us. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a lot it can do. Uh, for example, it can um, uh, summarize the text. Uh, it can uh, help you generate responses to the questions. So it's like generating responses to the questions. It can also help in generating images. Uh, so think about it. You might have heard about uh, mid-journey uh, or re real-life images. You might have seen some of the images as well, where uh, you might have seen Alan Musk standing in a village, uh, uh, yeah, like dressed like a poor person. You know, all those are generated by artificial intelligence, generative AI using uh, softwares like Midjourney, algorithms like Stable Diffusion. All those are, uh, all this is what generative AI can do generate text, uh, generate images, uh, do summarization, do question answering, build chatbot you name it and it is there. But essentially it is text generation and image generation. And both of them are then expanded to generate several use cases. Maybe I can uh, chip in and talk a bit about also what I perceive as super far powers from, uh, from the current era of AI that we're in. Uh, you know, I, unlike Ankit, I don't have extensive background in AI or machine learning. And for me, having access to these huge um, LLMs, large language models like GPT 3.5, GPT 4, uh, and other GPT models and other open source models suddenly allows me as a developer uh, to do wonders and essentially have superpowers and, and things that I couldn't do before. So if before that, for me to run my own kind of AI model that does stuff, I would need to have access to a lot of data that is very expensive and very hard to get. I would need to have my own perhaps open source model or my in-house model, which is very expensive to develop. Uh, I would need to have computation power uh, to run all these trainings on data sets and provide feedback and fine-tune my model, well, basically now I'm able to consume an openly available uh, AI model. Some of them are open source, some are not, uh, which are pre-trained on billions of data points. Um, just for instance, uh, back when there was GPT-3, running a, a training round of GPT-3 cost $10 million. So, you know, th this is out of reach for many of us, um, or at least it was. And now with with uh, APIs such as OpenAI, I'm able to you know 
reference my, my data in my organization when somebody asks me a question over a chatbot and then give them the answer directly in a very human-like manner and have a conversation and just overall do fantastic things. Yeah, I I completely agree with those points. I mean, like if I if I uh, look back and, and and into the past last years, always when I was uh, thinking about artificial intelligence, um, the most reality that I've seen at work was in the movies. Like uh, you're imagining Jarvis in uh, in Marvel, you know, like the that it does some kind of super. Uh, superficial things and the computer and uh, it, it does some kind of cool things. And now if I go to chat GPT and I tell him uh, to act as if he's Jarvis and uh, give him like some data points, like teaching him how maybe J- Jarvis works and what, what exactly language type does he use, he could actually imitate it. Um, and, and, and it's just like pretty amazing um, how, how far it can, it can, it can get. But one thing that I did understand when, uh, or didn't, or a, a little bit d- did understand is is just how 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 it works behind the scenes. So, I guess what what I'm trying to understand is like we have this uh, artificial intelligence that we're calling it artificial intelligence, but is how like smart is it actually? Is it can it like calculations? Can it run calculations and know that they're correct in a way? Because when I did try to say to JGPT, what's two plus two? And I tell it it equals three while it's actually four. Um, it's like, eventually you can get it to say three. So it doesn't really have, um, let's say the common sense in a way it's more, or does it? I mean, that's what I'm trying to understand. So perhaps uh, we can talk a little bit about the, uh, that. That's a very interesting way to, to fool uh, the algorithm by prompting and saying 2 plus 2 is equal to 3. However, I would say that these algorithms are meant to democratize AI, this uh, chat GPT and uh, the generative AI. And that's why you are seeing a huge surge in the usage of chat GPT, 100 million subscribers within three weeks. Now, what exactly is the reason? The reason is that you are giving a pocket size atom bomb to each user that they can use for uh, good purposes, not for bad purposes, by asking questions like you did to chat GPT and start acting like a Jarvis. However, uh, you would still can make a bad use of it by a couple of ways. Firstly, by having a chat GPT or similar algorithm generate content, uh, which possibly is not good. For example, uh, generate content, uh, which may be for indecent behavior or generate content in order to fool other people or generate content, you know, to hack systems, uh, to learn about hacking, to learn about uh, something that you should not do. So there are people who do that. However, there are also ways that you can fool it in order by what you can do. You can guide it in a certain way so that it starts generating responses which it should not. For example, there is something called chain of thought reasoning. Uh, so what you can do, you can actually start training your uh, large language model by providing the question and then also providing a response. Now, if you start providing the incorrect response, eventually your AI would start generating uh, incorrect responses. However, uh, with time, we are seeing that these AI algorithm, generative AI models are getting smarter because they have been trained on a very large corpus of data. And that large corpus of data helps it to differentiate what is correct versus what is incorrect. Uh, unless you keep on 
training it on incorrect data uh, millions of times, it would still be able to generate correct response. Uh, that's the power of these large language models. And I think maybe um, the fact that you're able to tell uh, ChatGPT that, uh, I don't know, two plus two is three, and it says, all right, it's three. I think it's sort of a, a guardrail that they have put in place. You know, at the end of the day, it's trained on a lot of data. Um, and there is a sort of interest, I believe, for these model providers to make it work for you rather than against you. Um, so I would assume that maybe a part of, of, of the sort of the train of thoughts that there is that, you know, to give you comfort is that if you say something is true, it'll just go with the flow. But, you know, don't think that that is going to resonate um, or penetrate deep into the model so that other people who are going to ask the same question will get the same thing. Um, and the second thing is just maybe a disclaimer for everyone. Don't do math with uh, with uh, LLMs. There's better ways to do it, um, such as just directly in your software. Uh, also NLP, stuff like that, natural language processing. I think there's cheaper, more efficient and, and better ways to do it. But, you know, anything generative, like Ankit said earlier, generating images, generating uh, text, summarizing stuff. Um, that's that's a fantastic use case. Actually, let's do that. So I, I, I you know, I'm a developer yourself, Ariel. You you have been a developer and a company owner uh, these days, um, and so and, and kid, of course, you're coming from a more, uh, you know, maybe not coding experience, but you're more looking at it from, you know, knowing about AI in general and working with it. And I'm, I, and I'm like, I've been curious about this. We have this. OpenAI company coming in, uh, I don't know, what is it, half a year ago or a year ago or something like that that's been existing, more or less? I mean, they started their research seven years or six years ago, I think, right? To start, like the company itself, I guess. Okay, so then it's been already for two years here. Um, I've been hearing things that uh, before Elon Musk was behind the building of this company and then he uh, left and then somebody else took over or something like that. But the, I guess the point that I'm trying to understand is, is about really the data privacy because we're going to, you know, everybody's going to use this tool or use, is using it already. It's one of the fastest growing um, uh, applications, if you will, uh, in the world currently with the, gaining uh, so many millions of users. Um, passing all the big companies that we know, like Netflix, uh, Facebook, etc., and we're all going to the same company and putting our data there and talking about, you know, people use it for code. Uh, some people can use it even to talk, like talking to a psychiatrist, like actually sharing, you know, some personal details about the situation, and and they can give it can give you an advice like a psychiatrist would in a way, although it has, of course, it is disclaimers, but still. Are we here, um, you know, I want to discuss the importance of it, of the data privacy. So as far as you know, to, to your information, Ankit, how, how is our data being used when, when we, whenever we go and prompting things uh, in using uh, OpenAI or ChatGPT? Yeah. Uh, so essentially, uh, during the initial release of ChatGPT, there were a lot of uh, uh, stories that were real stories, in fact, a lot of instances, I would call, wherein there were in um, data privacy and data leakage issues. One interesting example was the Samsung data leakage example, where Samsung employees uh, started using ChatGPT uh, in order for, the, for to get assistance with respect to their day-to-day -day work or sometimes even with respect to the coding 
uh, and um, it was doing okay. How till that time they realized that the data that they are putting into ChatGPT is possibly used by OpenAI in order to further retrain the model. And uh, that is pretty common for these generative AI models that they use a technique called RLHF, which is like a reinforcement uh, learning mechanism through which uh, the models continue to evolve and they learn uh, by reward and penalizing method. Now, uh, it was during the initial release. However, with that Samsung data leakage example, uh, the world realized that while these large language models are powerful, they may also have capacity to consume a lot of your information. And it is possible that whatever information you are putting in there, some other user who is using that model may get uh, that information. Uh, for example, there was a copyright violation, if you know, uh, where a stability diffusion model generated images with Getty logo in those images. So that was another instance that uh, you are training the model, you never know where exactly that information may pop up and which user may see that information. So in order to create guardrails around it, what companies are doing, uh, 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 these companies are now creating a copy of the model and providing to the enterprise users so that whatever information they use to either prompt engineer the model or fine tune the model, the copy of the model remain private to their use. And once they are done, they can actually kill or throw that copy of the model so that the, there are no data leakage issues. So either you can have your own copy of the model if you want to do it right. For example, AWS provides Model Hub uh, called Jumpstart, wherein you can get your own personal copy of the model and the data remains within your ecosystem. So that is one way to do that. Another way is you use the model API-based through API-based methods. However, it is advisable that when you do that, still you do not pass any private or personal information or uh, any kind of an organization's confidential information because uh, uh, still there is a uh, single copy of the model that is being used by multiple users through API. Unless uh, you have a... Uh, you have a method, for example, using AWS Bedrock, wherein you get, again, your own copy of the model, through which, which is accessible through API. So you, we need to have those conversations with these model providers to make sure that the data is not being used to train the model, rather it is being used for your own purposes. To, to add to that a bit, um, you know, I know that at least we're currently in May 2023, right? I know that OpenAI has... Uh, change their policy. It's mostly affecting business users. So uh, at least the official statement from OpenAI is that it stopped using customer data uh, sent from the API to train its model. Um, I'm not sure if this if this uh, touches ChatGPT. Uh, so I don't want to I don't want to comment about that. Um, so there's that. There's OpenAI, a relatively young company, uh, processing a lot of data. You know, a lot of people sending in uh, IP of their businesses, personal information of themselves, their customers, and stuff like that. And then, of course, you have this massive investment that Microsoft has made um, in terms of, you know, supporting OpenAI and, and being a major stakeholder there. Um, you see a lot of enterprises, and I'm having conversations with these on a daily basis, that highly favor Azure AI, which essentially is just um, OpenAI deployed in Azure. Uh, a lot of enterprises uh, support um, Azure because of its compliance, deep history of being reliable and, and transparent and stuff like that. Um, but essentially, OpenAI is available through Azure. It's exactly the same model, um, but it, it has that um, very solid, um, you know, reliability, uh, tr security, compliance aspect to it. Um, 
And to this point, we talked about businesses and, and, and their protection. And, you know, they, they obviously have the money to pay for, for that. But what about us, like the regular day-to-day user? Um, if you're going to use this just for like, you know, just prompting, uh, you know, creating content or for just about, you know, anything that is just personal, where do we stand on that point? Do we mean from a pricing perspective or from a data perspective? Data privacy perspective. Data privacy. Um, yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, it depends on what you want to do, right? If you want to provide it with your documentation site and ask it to uh, generate a tutorial based on somebody's uh, coding ability, then you are going to end up sending your documentation site. Uh, but there are many cases in which you can uh, do things without exposing a business IP or your personal information. So for example, I've built a, a project called Resumator that generates cover letters um, I could anonymize user data because AI doesn't have to know who you are. It doesn't have to know your email address. It doesn't have to know where you live. I can just stitch that back in when I get the response from the AI provider. So that's actually what we were doing. We were, and it's called PII anonymization. So personal identifying information anonymization. Uh, let's say I want to generate you a cover letter. As Resumator, I know uh, that you're Daniel Frey. I know where you live. I know your email address. I can just anonymize that when I send it to the AI provider and stitch it back in. Right, right. And then to piggyback on that, in fact, uh, you don't have to pass your data in raw way, in raw format to these models. What you can do, you can convert your data into embeddings, uh, into the vectors. Uh, so that is a numerical representation of text. So you can convert your data into uh, your text into embeddings, store that in a vector database, and then pass that data to the model as an input, or rather than passing the raw data, so that the model would never understand what exactly the raw input was, what exactly the real text was. So that is another way through which you are actually masking or anonymizing your data, and you are not uh, sharing the raw data with the model. Oh, that's an interesting method. I actually, first time I'm hearing about this. Is, is this something like a feature that supports in ChatGPT 3.5 or... Is this like something more? So ChatGPT is just the, the the browser interface that you get as a kind of a private person who wants to use OpenAI. But you know, in terms of software, then you use the OpenAI API layer, uh, chat completions, GPT 3.5, GPT 4, and other models. Uh, I'm gonna let Ankit continue from here. Just wanted to correct you on the on the ChatGPT part. Yeah, in fact, this is a way. Uh, this is a very common way people are using uh, these large language models. Essentially. Most of the people are, uh, so that is a very common use case that you upload documents and then you start generating uh, responses by based on any question that you ask pertaining to that document. So now in order to do that, a very common uh, architecture is that uh, you use a vector database you and then you use uh, uh, any algorithm. There are so many algorithms out there open source through which uh, uh, you can actually convert your text into embedding. So you first use that uh, open source method. Uh, uh, you pass your document, convert it into embedding, store those into vector database, and then pass it to the large language model as an input first in order to generate that knowledge base for the large language model. And then even when you start asking questions, follow the same process, convert into embedding, then send the question back to the large language model. And the model will again send a response in form of embedding, which will be converted back into text using the same software. So that's how it is it, it is happening in, in most of the cases. I guess that's um, you know, I, I guess that masks the data from like in in a, in a very like uh, maybe on the surface, 
but I still believe that with embeddings, it's not encrypted in any way, right? So if somebody really wanted to convert these embeddings to text, um, they could see it. I guess it does make it a bit less convenient to do that. But actually, while we're talking about this, I was thinking it would be really cool if you could kind of like self-host your own version of a model, provide it with an encryption key that you own, um, so that then you know that even if the data get, gets leaked somewhere along the way, um, nobody has has access to it again. I mean, that's beyond me. I'm not that, uh, <laughs> you know, but it's interesting. No, in fact, that's, that's right, Ariel. You are right. Actually, it is possible to regenerate the text from the embeddings. You, you are right. Unless you actually uh, modify it. And if you modify it, the model will not understand it. Uh, uh, so essentially, you can reconvert the text. So, so I like the idea that you mentioned that you get your own private copy of the model. And that's what uh, some of the model providers are doing. I, I gave you an example of AWS uh, Jump Start Model Hub. So essentially the users and many other companies might be doing that as well, that the user will get their own personal copy of the model. You may want a Cohere model, you may want an Anthropic model or an AI21 Labs model, whatever model you want, we can choose, or an open source model like a Bloom. Uh, we can choose the model that you want get your own private copy, uh, keep it in your ecosystem, in your VPC environment, uh, uh, use it to train uh, using your document, do whatever work you want to do, continue doing it for six months, one year, or till whatever time you need that model copy. And once you are done, you can destroy it. So essentially, it's your own copy, do whatever you want to do with it. Yeah, it sounds indeed uh, really awesome. And for sure, if uh, anyone who's listening to this and uh, wants to build their own uh, AI project, uh, generative AI project, they can uh, use those tools. So uh, our, the links will be obviously in the post uh, of this episode. Um, now I want to take the topic a little bit uh, more to the uh, side where uh, we have AI as uh, makes it all up its own stories. So many times when I'm prompting uh, and t- trying to talk to ChatGPT, it in a way um, creates sometimes things that were not existing in the in the story. So it's kind of elucidating. So what I'm trying to understand is I've, I've recently seen a post on LinkedIn about the some secret um, thingy, which I forgot the name of the property that I think it's called tuning that you can tune um, the uh, the name. Um, and try to really like make it more precise. So, um, you know, I, I, I would, I would like to talk a, a little bit more, uh, in terms of, of, of that and what kind of, uh, uh tools, uh, Ariel, I know that, uh, in your, uh, in your case, there has been, um, more deeper investigation into prompting, especially in Pezzo project, you, 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 you actually have the functionality and settings that you can put into each prompt um, to, to kind of, you know, make it uh, a little bit better. So I'd like also to hear from your side on that, but um, let's start uh, with Ankit. Ankit, wh- where, where's your headspace on that? So on the hallucination side, uh, uh, certainly these models are trained on a very large amount of data. And and a variety of data as well. It may be trained on Reddit data, Twitter data, Quora data, you know, on Wikipedia. So some some are fact based, while some might be uh, you know some weird responses to questions. You never know what you are feeding into your algorithm. And the based on the knowledge it draws by reading so much, by understanding from so much content, sometimes it is possible that the model may confuse the response and it may do some kind of a mix up. 
And that's what is called a hallucination. When you ask some question and the model generates a completely weird or a different response. Now, uh, how do you reduce this? How do you manage it? So there are various ways uh, to do that. One of the ways is uh, temperature. So there is a parameter when you work with large language model, which is called temperature. So if you increase the temperature, uh, what happens is the model will res- provide variety of responses, uh, and then uh, but you will surely get your response. If you reduce the temperature to zero, then model will provide you very very precise information, and you may not get that in every circumstance. Uh, however, you will reduce the hallucination. So that is one way uh, to to manage it. Another way is. Uh, some companies are writing a layer on top of the large language models so that once a response is generated, they further refine it, curate it, just to make sure that it is good enough for the user to see the response. So that is another way uh, to manage the response. And then some other ways are certainly prompt engineering. Ariel can talk about that. Uh, fine-tuning, uh, using your own uh, set of documents so that you can actually update the weights of the model. And, and it can improve itself. So, so those are some of the ways. But before I end my this uh, discussion, uh, I want to tell you that there is are interesting companies who are actually making use of hallucination. Uh, if you read about something called Dream GPT, what they are doing, they are actually making use of hallucination power of the model in order to create some sort of creative and uh, dream images for the users. So, so it's interesting to see how people are making use of the disadvantages of the models nice uh, ariel from your side um you know i, I want to take it back to uh, to kind of uh, on the developer perspective you know what problem do you see today when when trying to build uh, you know just anything about experimenting with uh, with ais um and trying to build maybe a product out of it what what are the main problems that you see today happening when when trying to do so Cool. So maybe uh, nothing beats a real story. Um, when when me and my co-founder Itai, we you know at some point we wanted to work on a side project. Again, it was a career toolkit. We saw all these layoffs going on, so we said, you know what? Let's just build a, a AI powered career toolkit that will help people get placed. Um, I was there. It was in Burger King. We were sitting and we wrote everything on a piece of tissue. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You were there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's funny. So, you know, we've really built Resumator. Um, really, it's just anyone can go for free and generate a cover letter that is personalized. And we actually helped place quite a few people at, at very high profile companies like Google and AWS as well. Um, so, you know, it was really nice. But while working on Resumator, we ended up having like 50,000 monthly AI transaction volume. We had we had that over 20 prompts. Um and as software engineers, you know, Ita has worked for Lemonade. I was head of engineering for enterprises. I worked at serverless before. Uh, you know, we are very tech savvy uh, and we understand different environments, whether it's startups, scale-ups or enterprises. We kind of realize, holy shit, I mean, the, the landscape is very immature. Uh, the, the, the set of tooling that you have to, as a developer, I think what's cool about LLMs and generative AI is that, is that it really makes this powerful technology available to anyone. If it was exclusive to ML and AI engineers in the past, now any full stack developer can instantly unleash that power. But the tooling is not there. So, you know, we would get errors coming from OpenAI and we wouldn't understand what's going on. We wanted to make small changes to our AI model to tweak it a bit, to make it more precise, to make it better. But then we had to go through like a full release cycle. We had to build everything, test everything, go through staging, go to production, just for a simple change. Then observability, you know, you have 
zero understanding of what goes wrong, where, when, how much did it cost you, how long did it take? You just get that, you know, very shallow metric from OpenAI. And finally, it's cost, cost clarity. So you would get absolutely nothing but a bill at the end of the month. I don't know what users cost me most, what AI model cost me most, um, what specific parameters cause my my model to take more time to run or less time to run or more tokens or less token. So really we've built Pezzo initially as an internal library to solve that problem for Resumator. It was pretty great. Uh, we assumed just based on our experience as engineers for, for various businesses that this problem exists elsewhere. We went ahead to validate this problem with other folks in our network. And that's when we, we decided to open source Pezzo. So Pezzo is currently a, a fully open source uh, software you can just search for GitHub Pezzo and, and you'll fi find that. Our website is pezzo.ai. And really what we want to do um, is enable anyone uh, to adopt AI with confidence, uh, regardless of your model provider, regardless of, of you know whether you want to do chat completion or image generation or whatever. We want to help you do it with confidence, with observability, with privacy, uh, security. We're going to prevent stuff like prompt injection, anonymized data, and really just helps you get started. Because at the end of the day, businesses need to provide value to their end users. And AI is probably not your main product, uh, just judging by the numbers. Um, and that's really what we want to do. So we, we, we understand that businesses don't like vendor locking. And AI, uh, th therefore, Pezzo is open source, and it's meant to enable you uh, your AI journey, whatever your uh, provider is. Amazing. I, I think as a developer that wants to get started, uh, just about anything, uh, th this can really help like uh, version control my prompts, check what's uh, what's causing the failure, as well as a business to just uh, to, in general, when it becomes a business to just understand where my money goes, and, uh, etc. And, you know, I tried myself when I was working uh, uh, on some funny project, and I was trying to like generate responses. The one of the things that were really like, uh, annoying is to find the right prompt. Uh, so you need to understand uh, like the the power of uh, of, of that, and it, it can be a whole episode within itself. But um, what what would be your main tips uh, when 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 you try to give like just about anything a prompt that you you, you want to write about? Uh, let's say I don't know a travel advice. I want to go to Rome and give me the best uh, three top location summary on that. And you want to build an API uh, that recommends you uh, about uh, traveling. Um, and, and, and you want to get like the, it to, to give you some good uh, data. So if you were to just kickstart things on the prompting side, what, what would be your, your approach on that? I'm going to give your viewers a few tips and one of them is going to save them a lot of money. So uh, number one tip for developers, get started with Langchain. Um, many of us don't know Langchain because you know we're coming from a more JavaScript-oriented background. I think Python developers are much more familiar with Langchain. Uh, it's extremely powerful. I'm not going to dive into what it does, but all in all, really helps you. Um, if you build an AI-oriented app, generative AI especially, Langchain will help you. You know, take care of the whole journey, retry mechanisms, um, agents. You know, it's it's just going to be the way to start. It's a bit more difficult to start with, but it's far better than consuming the AI model directly. So that's my tip number one. It's going to go a long way. It's an open source project. Um, tip number two, understand um, if you're dealing with more creative work or more structured work. If you are uh, expecting to output uh, information about, I don't know, your travel itinerary to Rome, then you probably want to render it on some website. You, wanna, you want it to be structured. You know, you want to have a title, you want to have a description, you want to have a cost estimate. Maybe you want to have suggested dates. This is very structured data. Set your temperature to zero. Um, 
you don't want to get creativity there. You don't want uh, OpenAI to uh, make up names of places, uh, and you want the JSON response to be consistent every time you you generate uh, uh, a travel itinerary. And then my last advice, and this is the golden advice for how to save money, is if you ask OpenAI to return JSON, which is very, very common, make sure to ask it to minify your JSON. So make sure that the API returns JSON in a single line with no white spaces and no line breaks. You essentially pay per token. Uh, usually it's priced per thousand tokens. That's how they display it. If you remove white, uh, uh, sorry, if you remove white uh, spaces and line breaks, you can reduce your token count by up to 50%. And that's 50% less money that you're going to pay to the AI provider. And that counts both for the request and for the response. And as soon as we've done that for Resumator, we saved our bills like literally 50%. Wow. <laughs> you can use the OpenAI tokenizer. It's totally free, open, paste a piece of text there, and you'll know exactly how many tokens your request uh, will take. Amazing. And Ankit, what, what's your take on the, on those tips? Anything to add? Anything to uh, that you would like to say? No, that's pretty interesting. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, prompt engineering is like an art um, and you need a flair for it, uh, essentially. You need to develop it and it happens over the period of time. And unless you write the correct prompt, uh, you wouldn't get the right response. So it's like, you know, getting a, a small child to do something. That's how I usually explain because you are the small kids when they crawl and when they learn walking. They do it in a way that reinforcement work, learning works, you know. They fall, they again stand up. So in a similar way, you have to make your model learn by prompting it the right way and giving it the response that you expect. Uh, so that's why it is very important. And uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, you need to accelerate and prompt engineering is going to be a job in future. Uh, now, I was surprised to see Anthropic released a job for prompt engineers, um, and they are ready to pay up to 350 USD, uh, or $350,000 USD. Uh, so it, it's pretty interesting that prompt engineering will be one of the jobs that will evolve because uh, you need those experts to get the right response from this. And maybe uh, another one, uh, which is actually quite, quite useful, is at the end of the day, you have a limit to how much data you can send in a prompt. That's, that's called the context, right? Um, GPT-4 has a far, like double the context compared to GPT-3. Um, but at the end of the day, you're most likely going to do things that require either a lot of input or a lot of output. You want to find ways to minimize context, first of all, because it's cheaper, but also because it's faster. I mean, some prompts will take you 90 seconds to execute or stuff like that. So um, my advice is to find opportunities to parallelize prompts. So if you're a piece of software, for example, in Resumator, we do that. Um, but let's take your example. If you want to build an itinerary to travel somewhere, then you might have a prompt that, um, based on the user's preferences, uh, provides a set of um, potential destinations. That would be prompt number one. Make that a single prompt. Then, based on the output of that, um, you could go and fire up a bunch of prompts in parallel, one to extract the average price, one to extract a set of um, attractions, want to extract a set of, uh, I don't know, um, best time to go and see that place. And you make these go in par parallel. You're barely going to pay any extra because, again, you're going to pay uh, not per amount of executions, but per tokens in your uh, request and your response. And then, um, generally, you're just going to have a far faster experience. 
So find opportunities to parallelize. Find opportunities to parallelize. That's, that's extremely important. And more importantly, you give it less in instructions per prompt so it gets less confused. At the end of the day, they have the best interest of returning a response as fast as possible. And that means that the more instructions you add to a single prompt, the less focus it will have. It will start missing other instructions and playing around and being inconsistent. So really keep your prompts uh, focused on one thing if you can. Amazing. All those tips are so great. And I, and I think if I summarize it, is keep it short, keep it simple, uh, direct, uh, make sure that you're adjusting the temperature uh, correctly to, uh, to what you want. If you want it to elucidate or not, uh, up to you to what the product you're building. Um, and just really, um, you know, use Pezzo, I think that that's, that's also a great, <laughs> that's also a great thing. Yeah, just I I, I uh, tried it when I was building uh, something, uh, and and I think it's like it it gives me so much insight, and it's also for free because it's also open it's open source, so it's 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 it's, it's for sure boosted my productivity on that, and and gave me a lot of insights. Um, and yeah, taking it, uh, you know, we, we started to talk a little bit about jobs and, 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 and I think that's a good time uh, to, to go to the next topic, which is uh, the impact that uh, AI and generative AI will have on our workforce. So we spoke about what kind of job it may create, which is uh, the prompt engineering, which has already uh, been ongoing. Uh, and I've seen also like uh, people, um, you know, posting about it more more often. But what kind of jobs will it replace? That's also an interesting one, right? I mean, as a developer, I've been hearing, especially the, um, recently, that at some point we will be all replaced and something will be uh, will be changing. And it's like every time there is something new in humanity, it seems like all we do is spare scarcity and people are just like panicking out. Corona was, and then everybody was thinking we're going to stay home locked forever. And now look at us, we don't even talk about it anymore and nobody's wearing wearing a face mask it's like um just one example of how people like to panic or going and buying toilet paper uh thinking it will be finished in the store at some point and then now everybody's sitting uh, we're sitting at least probably it's finished <laughs> with a bunch of toilet paper at home so i want to like calm the spirits down uh maybe or or not but uh you you tell me you guys are the uh experts and keith what, what where does it where do you sit on that yeah, I would say that uh, there wouldn't be uh, a job, complete job replacement or, uh, you know, completely human replacement. I don't think humans can be replaced by whatsoever powerful machine we may build. I would say that there will be a kind of a transformation of the jobs uh, uh, for sure. However, we will certainly see some impact uh, in certain branches of the industry. Uh, for example, uh, the biggest impact uh, we might see is in the space where we have the uh, we have the professionals who do content writing i think we are already seeing that impact uh, in the content writing space uh, because now uh, uh, the generative ai models can generate novel content so that is one area another area i would see there will be some impact would be uh, in the marketing and sales space uh, uh, because uh, we can bring in some sort of uh, efficiency uh, in the marketing and sales by leveraging large language models to uh, to help us uh, do some of the tasks that were earlier done by us, by basically human beings manually. For example, when you are having conversation with your client uh, and uh, after that you have to update your uh, 
database internally, some of those things are done by uh, the large language models. Another uh, space where I see a big impact is uh, on the on the illustrator side, because now what I have observed that people who used to reach out to illustrators for generation of images, etc., maybe for any kind of blogs, for writing books, etc., they can very well do it themselves to some extent, not as beautifully as illustrator used to do, but stable diffusion models and mid-journey models, they are pretty good in doing those kind of things. So that is another place where I see a big impact. Uh, one more place where we may see some sort of efficiencies or optimization is in the coding space uh, with the emergence of tools like uh, Microsoft Copilot uh, and then AWS Code Whisperer. You know, these can be your buddies, coding buddies, and can help you accelerate your coding. And uh, so essentially the task that three people could do earlier now can be done by one person if he is provided with the right set of tools. So that's another area we might see uh, some impact. And one more before I, because I mean, I can keep on going uh, talking about it, but one more place where I see a big impact is in the legal and contract space. Uh, so essentially, I'm seeing so many startups uh, uh, coming up in this space, so we, which are helping customers to write contracts, to write the legal documents, uh, uh, to write NDAs, to, to review these documents, contracts, uh, legal documents, that you are essentially not reaching out to attorney for every other work that you want to do. You are only reaching out to them for some specialized work. So that's again where we will see uh, we will start seeing some impact. I think the um, the interesting thing is if your work involves any input and output, you can probably benefit from this in one way or another, whether it's in real time or in retrospect or helping you develop new techniques. So if you're a psychologist and that seems like the most human centric job you can kind of think of, even you can probably like let's say there is a book released by one of the of the of your fellows that you really appreciate, you could use AI to summarize that book, to, to learn how to apply it to your techniques. I think anyone um, can take advantage of, of even stuff like ChatGPT. I'm not even talking about developer-heavy stuff. And uh, I think, you know, that's going to bring a lot of people the edge. A lot of people are not actively seeking to adopt it. And those who do, uh, somebody else said it. I don't know who already because everybody says that on LinkedIn. But they say, it's not AI that's going to replace you, but other people who are taking advantage of AI. Um, so yeah, just try to see what what uh, generative AI can do for you. It's probably quite a bit. Powerful, powerful words. And uh, Ariel, what would be your best advice for uh, uh, an engineer currently trying to like you know stay up to date with things and and then trying to pursue their next uh, their next thing in their career? What 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 would that be? You know, as a self taught engineer, my advice is to just build stuff. Take an idea. Maybe you have an existing side project you've built a month ago uh, or a year ago. Try to see how you can implement AI to make it better. Um, it, it can be really simple. You know, It can be as simple as a single prompt that does one thing or recommends to fix something or gives insight or explains something in a human-friendly way. Just build something. You wanna, you know, That's how I started and got to the point of, of having Pezzo, um, just by starting trying to build something. And the second thing is, um, you know, I, I really think we're far from a point where AI can replace engineers. Uh, and to be honest, I was a bit worried about it too, um, mostly because of hype. But being an engineer, I've been using GitHub Copilot ever since I remember, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a developer program member at GitHub. I have access to the private beta of GitHub Copilot chat as well. Um, it's still not there, really. And and it's, it's uh, 
it's a co-pilot, really. It's not a pilot. So, uh, and it's doing that pretty well. So don't be scared of it. Try to take advantage of it. Um, it saves you a lot of time and helps you focus on what matters. Nice, nice. Um, and uh, do you guys believe that uh, prompting uh, or prompt engineer or whatever thing is that related to prompts will still exist and, and as more the models uh, evolve and, and, and starting to become better? Yeah, so I would say it would. Uh, maybe in some or the other manner. For example, right now it is done in a very, very manual way. However, with the emergence of companies like Pezzo, uh, you know, and other similar companies on the prompt engineering, which could be your co-pilots for prompting, you know, you would see it uh, in a more refined and automated manner. So, so that you don't have to do uh, put in a lot of efforts into prompt engineering. I think that is one behavior we would see. Um, in, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so that is one thing. Uh, uh, however, uh, like uh, coming back to your other question as well around the jobs that you would see. So, you will continue to see jobs like prompt engineers for some time. Uh, till the time, you know, we come up with some new technology, uh, which I, I don't know what we will, uh, through which we will have smarter models. Uh, so we will have, we will continue to see prompt engineers and a lot of other jobs like data aggregators uh, with the emergence of these large language models. The, again, the most important asset or treasure is data. So if you have the right set of data, you would have the right set of models. So you would continue to see jobs like data aggregators, data curators, you know, those kind of jobs will emerge uh, in the coming time in order to um, manage these large language models and build these large language models. So we'll see a lot of new jobs. And I still remember those days, you know, when AI came uh, like 12, 15 years back when it it, it came up suddenly, uh, just like uh, this chat GPT and large language models. And prior to that, 25, 30 years back, uh, computers uh, emerged, right? So we always saw that there will be a job loss. Uh, humans will be replaced by these technologies. However, what we eventually saw was that there were new job opportunities that were created and more people got employment. So so I think I am still a, a ardent believer that we will see a lot of new jobs emerging and not it will not be a job loss it will be a job uh, displacement so basically or a or a new job that a person has to you know that one of the things that actually worry me a bit is the schooling system academia and stuff you know academia of, of course a lot of great things have risen from academia um, but unfortunately the trend is that whenever the, if we take ai for example usually uh, excellent researchers decide to leave academia and then they go to private research companies and that's how OpenAI started as a, as a sort of nonprofit and being, becomes a business and stuff like that. But really, academia has this wonderful thing of not adopting the present, uh, but being quite a bit behind. And uh, schooling systems as well sometimes can be like that. And I think AI is not going anywhere. Prompting, prompting is going to be like a key skill in anyone's daily life in the future. Um, I really hope to see school systems in various countries and, and high schools and universities not being scared of it. I mean, yes, sure, plagiarism is a, is a terrible thing and it's scary, uh, but that's not the gist of generative AI. It can do a lot more than that and there is no escape. Um, so I think finding a way to incorporate prompt engineering or prompting in general as a skill among young people, even kids, um, university students, you know, th that would be incredible for everyone. 
um, and surely will bridge the gap because I don't think you have to be that technical to be a good prompt engineer. Like you could be a subject matter expert at biology and be a far better prompt engineer about biology compared to an engineer. Um, so yeah, that's all. Adopt it quickly, guys. I'm speaking to the teachers and schools out there. Yeah, it's uh, they're always left behind in a way. And uh, even I think in Harvard, uh, Howard, they blocked it, I think, uh, from their computers uh, in the network, I heard. I don't know if it was Howard, but maybe some other schools. But they're trying to prevent the um, yeah, people using it for tests and stuff. Um, it's a shame because I do think there is a lot of potential there. Um, but yeah. So, you know, I want to like kind of summarize everything, uh, what we spoke about until to this point. Um, you know, we chatted uh, in the beginning about generative AI, what it is, what's the difference between that and just saying AI. And uh, it turns out it's just about, just like the word says, generative, so generating stuff uh, with AI. Um, and we also spoke about the superpowers that can give us, uh, right? We can, we can uh, generate images, we can generate text, we can generate audio even. Um, we didn't talk about audio, but that is also a quite big thing. Um, he spoke about data privacy, uh, things like IP, how can you protect that in a way? Uh, what are the loopholes that you can go through um, with modifying your prompts with hallucination and um, how can you uh, make it more precise? Uh, and so we're also uh, dive into the job replacement thingy. Is it going to replace? What is it going to replace uh, in short term? Uh, and also what kind of jobs it will create? Um and kind of to end uh, with uh, with something sweet in mind, uh, guys. Well, what where do you guys think uh, we're gonna be five years from now with this uh, evolution? What what are your um, let's say expectations? Um, Ariel, go ahead. You know what? I have no freaking idea. I mean it. I mean, if you ask me what would happen half a year ago with AI, there's no way I would have guessed it would be this. All I hope is that. Um, States and legislators will let the field evolve as it should be, um, but I cannot say that I'm totally unrest about the idea of data privacy, um, guardrails, protecting people, protecting IP. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to see. I hope it will be done in a way that enables it to grow and scale and, and have a positive impact, but I also hope that we'll find ways to uh, uh, really make sure that we use it for good stuff and not for bad stuff. Yeah, interesting. So maybe, I don't know about five years, but maybe in a couple of weeks, Daniel, I would see you using ChatGPT to summarize your podcast so that you don't have to take notes, you know. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think uh, uh, this generative AI is in a very, very evolutionary phase at this point of time. Um, and I see that because every week I see so many new uh, models coming up, so many new applications being developed so i think we are in a very very nascent stage at this point of time and i think to say after five years uh, yeah i think it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be useful however yes in next few months we will see uh, a lot of companies adopting these uh, technologies uh, they will get out of this inhibition or the risk phase or the fear phase uh, that currently exists in the market uh, and then they will start uh, embracing it. And once they start embracing it, then probably we will see an impact impact in increasing the productivity, in, in impact on, uh, you know, uh, job transformations, uh, new jobs evolving, and also impact on, uh, 
some of the startups becoming unicorns and then generating a lot of job opportunities. And then also impact on ability of uh, uh, not just uh, uh, some companies to build foundation models, but ability for large set of individuals to develop their own specialized foundation models as we go forward. I think that is those are certain uh, things that we are going to see as we move forward in the next few months. Amazing. Thank you both for ha- being here and giving this amazing overview about the power of generative AI. Um, any, any last words, guys, before we close it off? It was so pleasant. Thank you. Thank you, Ankit, as well. It was really, really fun. I learned a lot. Yeah, thank you so much, Daniel. Uh, first podcast may not be my best, but yeah, I love doing that. And Ariel, I wish you all the best for your startup. And yes, I think for the user, for the listeners as well, I think we should not fear from chat GPT or from large language models. We should embrace it uh, and see what is the best we can derive out of it. Think of it like just an uh, you know arm or a, or a tool in your pocket. Uh, use it when you want to use it, and don't use it when you should not use it. So, so yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Daniel Frey.me Talks. Get access to previous episodes, the transcript for today's show, as well as other exclusive content at DanielFrey.me.